0: President Biden's son Hunter has been exposed using the N word, and oh, what a hullabaloo of shock and indignation there hasn't been anywhere at all. Hunter's repeated use of the foul racist slur appeared in texts to his white lawyer, in which Hunter also referred to God as a, quote, fictional character from the imagination of the collective frightened, unquote. Which may explain why Hunter is unafraid of eternal damnation, even though he apparently uses the N word almost as freely as he uses anti-gay slurs, prostitutes, crack cocaine, and his father's influence. Normally, after the use of the N-word by a public figure, we could expect to see Don Lemon or Anderson Cooper or some other corrupt journalist staring fawn-eyed into a camera and pretending to fight down tears of sorrow over America's racist soul shadow or whatever crap corrupt journalists on CNN make up so they can have something to pretend to cry about with their fawn eyes. But this time, not a single fawn eyed corrupt journal could be seen tearing up on CNN or any other news outlet on which fawn eyed corruptos regularly tear up over make believe injustices that somehow cease to move them whenever they're committed by Democrats. In an interview with a velour silk shirt, Don Lemon explained that corrupt journalists were not being hypocritical when they neglected to force fake tears into their fawn eyes after Hunter Biden used the N word. Lemon said, quote, If this had been an obscure college teacher using the N-word while innocently discussing the anti-racist novel Huckleberry Finn, or a New York Times science writer using the N-word while innocently discussing the ethics of using the N-word, then by golly, I would have looked into the camera, fawn-eyed, and teared up with some of the best corrupt journalists in media. But when the son of a sitting president who has been plausibly accused of collaborating with his father to squeeze money out of foreign powers in return for political favors uses a racial slur, well, that just shows that the Democrat Party is a criminal organization with the soul of a tinpot dictator. And at CNN, that's what we call a banana instead of an apple or possibly an apple instead of a banana. I forget which, but who cares, since I'm talking complete crap anyway, unquote. CNN's crack media observer, Brian Stelter, who once missed a deadline in order to climb into bed and have a good cry over the pandemic, thus proving there really is such a thing as a woman in a man's body, said the non-uproar over Hunter's N-word is in keeping with the best traditions of American journalism, namely hypocrisy and lies. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. Honky donkey, life is tickety-boo. Birds are wing, also singing, hunky dunky doo. ship shape, dipsy-topsy, the world is zippity zing. It's a wonderful day. Hurrah hooray, hooray! It makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah hurrah. All right. The wandering prophet of Clavanon has wandered out of the mist once again to bring you another show. This time we'll be celebrating the return of Jeffrey Tubin to CNN uh, by doing the entire show without pants on. Uh, (laughs) You remember Jeffrey Tubin, who was (laughs) he was caught Toobin during a Zoom call, a Zoom conference, which is worse than exposing yourself on CNN because somebody might be watching. But now he is back where you because, you know, at CNN wanking on front of a camera is what they do. It was like, welcome. Welcome back to the team Uh, anyway. But because we're giving you so much more quality here uh, where we actually don't uh, play with ourselves while we're doing the show, I expect you to go on iTunes and subscribe to the show. It really helps us out. If you leave a five star rating, it really helps us out. It moves us up the ranking. We need that. That is good for us. I I don't know how to promote myself, so you have to promote me for me. Uh, and you could also go on and subscribe to my YouTube station, uh, Andrew Claven's YouTube channel. Uh, if you leave a comment there, if you press the bell, right, we will notify you when there is new content. Uh, anywhere on earth, no, no matter where there's new content, if you press that bell, we will show up at your house, knock and say there's new content. So we'll be there a lot. Uh, so leave out some food, uh, you know, and and some silverware. We'll want to take that as well. Also, if you leave a comment and it is sufficiently scabrous, ugly, racist, sexist and all those things, we will conclude it on the show because it fits right in. Uh, today, it's from Eddie McDonald, who says this is the best Clavin show I've seen and also the best I'll ever see because I'm not going to survive the week. Thank you for your service. And I, we know that Eddie must be a subscriber because he does not spell my name. He must be getting the ad-free shows. as K-L-A-V-E-N. So whenever I mail a letter, I like to put on a mask, go to the post office, stand online, stand online some more, stand online some more, and finally get a stamp and mail my letter. Or, or I can use stamps.com so I don't have to go to the post office ever again. You can mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, and pay less, a lot less, with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. Stamps.com saves businesses and regular people, too, thousands of hours and tons of money every year. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. Stop wasting time going to the post office and go to stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code CLAVEN, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Claven. That's stamps.com. Promo code CLAVEN, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again if and only if you know how to spell Claven, which is K-L-A. V- okay. No <laughs> All right. There is a genre of video uh, that goes around on Twitter uh, of uh, deaf kids uh, getting and babies getting implants and then they film them as they hear their mother's voice for the first time. And I want to show you a little bit of this, but I have to, to warn you. I know I know that you think of me as a, a man of steel, you know, this mighty macho, uh, immovable guy with a, a heart just uh, that can't be reached, a heart of stone. Uh, these things destroy me when I watch these. So we're gonna play this and then we'll take about 15 minutes of quiet time while I pull myself back together. But these things, I don't know what it is about them, but every time I see the little kid hear his mother's voice for the first time, I am just utterly destroyed. So I'll play it for you and then you know I'll just sob for a few minutes and then we'll we'll talk some more.
1: Hi, Dylan. Ooh. Hi, honey. Any air
2: Okay, so Mommy's happy. What do you think? Can you hear Mommy? Really Mm. good? Do you like it? It's awesome. Is it awesome? Yes, it is. (laughs)
0: Oh, these things destroy me. I mean, he's a kid, he can't hear, and then he hears his mother's voice. What's wrong with you? (laughs) If that doesn't move you, this is probably where you belong. You're probably rotten enough to be listening to this show. Now, when I look at this, the first thing after I finish sobbing into my shirt, the first thing I think is, wow, you know what? I had forgotten there really is such a thing as science as opposed to the crap science that's constantly being thrown in our face that means absolutely nothing. I mean, we are living in a world of wonders. Little children can hear that. They can hear their moms for the first time. I'm carrying a phone in my pocket. If Shakespeare, Shakespeare would have killed me to get his hands on this phone that has all the information in the world. The Trump vaccine, which Joe Biden is now taking credit for, the Trump vaccine happened so fast because Within seconds of some guy coughing, they had the genome. I mean, we didn't even know what a genome was before. Now they have the genome. They build this thing. You know, when they give you this vaccine, the old vaccines... They used to like you know when people had uh, what was it smallpox I think it was they would scrape flesh off the guy and inject that and in. you got the smallpox and then that made you immune. This doesn't even do that. They just give you the little signal from the RNA that tells your body you have the disease without actually giving you the disease. And it affects your body at such a deep level it changes your T cells so that now you're not you're not going to get the disease. You won't even get the variants. A lot of the variants are coming out and the the. Uh, vaccine works against them, too. The, this stuff is a miracle. It is a miracle. And we don't think about it. You know, we, we don't think about it at all. You know, for most of human history, 46 percent of children died. 46 percent of children died. Half of your children died. I mean, this is this, when you think about like the great people, you know, I'm a big fan of Wordsworth. His his children, his beloved children dropped off like flies. You know, they just disappeared and they were, must have been living in a constant state of, of trauma and grief. Right around the late 1800s, like falling off a cliff, right? The invention of science, the invention of medicine, the idea that, oh, you know, I have a good idea. Let's wash our hands before we deliver a baby because they didn't they couldn't see germs. They didn't know they existed right there, like the death rate of children just dive bombs. By 1950, it's 27 percent. It's halved. Uh, today, it's three to five percent around the world. But in a country like America, a modern country, it would be nothing almost uh, except for abortion. So we kill babies ourselves. We've become worse. But the, the science has been amazing. It is science. It is just a miracle. And it, we should think about it. We should think about the fact. But the problem is we are. we have to compare the science to and I'm going to use a technical term here crap science, which is what we keep getting hit with all the time on the news. They just hammer us with the news and they use the authority in the same way the New York Times uses the authority of what it it had because it was a newspaper once and it's now no longer a newspaper, but it uses the authority of the newspaper even though it's leftist tripe. In the same way Yale uses the reputation it had when it was a great university instead of now when it's a leftist cesspit, in the same way science uses the authority, the politicians use the word science to take the authority that it gets from all the miraculous things it has. Has in fact done, and uses that to try and sell leftist garbage. There is no existential threat from climate change. There is zero existential threat from climate change. Climate change is going to cause some problems. We caused part of the climate change, probably, probably. It's unlikely that we did all this stuff. It's not that. It's just all this AOC stuff. We're all going to die in eight years. There's nothing in the science that says that. What it says is it's going to cost us a little money to rearrange some things. There might be some problems. All the rest there are no more hurricanes than there were before, no more tornadoes, all of that stuff is nonsense. And when they call you a denier as if they were talking science, they're not. They're talking crap and calling it science. People can't change their genders. That is crap. That is not science. That is just, you know, that that's essentially using science as a form of torture, as a form of butchery. And you're a science denier if you don't want billionaires in Davos to decide how much gasoline you can use or you don't want your business to go under so a 90-year-old won't die of COVID or You want your kid to go to school, you're a science denier. And of course, the guy who exemplifies this, who is the avatar of science crap, is Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has just been, you know, he just keeps saying all the, now that we've seen these emails, we know that he's essentially a deceptive, manipulative, deep state actor. I think he fell in love with his own face on camera. He fell in love with being on camera. Uh, And he just, instead of telling people the truth so they could make decisions like free people, he told them what he thought would make them do what he thought they should do. He would lie to them. So he lied about the possible origin of the disease, about his own support for the Wuhan research. Uh, he kept changing the goalposts and lockdowns, herd immunities, masks. My pal Steve Crowder, crazy Steve Crowder, put together super cuts of all the Fauci's lies. Here's the one about masks. You can hear Crowder laughing in the background, there's nine.
2: Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. You're sure of it, because people are looking really <laughs> closely to it. Gives me. them an out. Right gives now. them an out, yeah. walk- There's no reason to be walking around with a mask. Let me double down. I mean, for me as a public health official, obviously, I would like the consideration that everybody wears a mask. If you have a physical covering with one layer, you put another mask. layer on, it just makes common sense that it likely would be more effective. There are many people double who mask. feel, you know, if you really want to have an extra little uh, bit of protection, maybe I should put two masks on there's nothing wrong with that but there's no data that indicates that that is going to make a difference
0: and now now when people have caught on they've seen his emails uh, the the, pre- the press is still fawning over him telling you oh how wonderful you are but people can see with their own eyes they can see he's like jeffrey Tubin from the you know up top he looks like a doctor down below he looks like jeffrey Tubin, he's naked now, this is what what he says when you know, Chuck, Chuck Todd is on NBC. Chuck Todd can't figure out why people are losing faith in our institutions. He can't imagine. He can't imagine why people are losing faith in our institutions while he lies and while he uh, encourages lies from uh, Fauci. So here's the interview.
1: What is your level of concern that we're going to discredit public health officials to the point of, you know, look at Russia. They actually have a good vaccine. And none of their citizens will take it because they don't trust their own government.
2: Right. It's very dangerous, Chuck, because a lot of what you're seeing as attacks on me, quite frankly, are attacks on science. Because all of the things that I have spoken about consistently from the very beginning
0: have been fundamentally based on science. Fauci is science. If you attack Fauci, you are attacking science. In the same way, if you're attacking me, you're attacking creative genius. If you attack me, you're you're really just attacking sexual magnetism, you know? In the same sense, you're attacking when you attack Fauci, he is the science made flesh and you are attacking science. And so there's this duality between science, this real thing, this way of manipulating matter that gives us these miraculous improvements in our lives, these miraculous devices, and these miraculous cures, and what, si- how we perceive science, what we say about science, what we do with science. It's an obvious dichotomy, right? You know, there's a theory, um, just to give an example of how science affects the way people think, there's a theory that whatever is the most technologically advanced machine we have at the time that's how we think of the human mind so plato back in ancient greece uh, compared the mind to a chariot which was high technology i mean that was that really was high technology and, you know, he said it's like a chariot with two horses, and one horse is the things that we want to do that are uh, rational and moral, and the other ho- a horse are the things we want to do that's irrational, and the rider has to make sure we go in the direction of the rational and moral. And so he used that as a metaphor for the human soul and the human mind. When the steam engine came along, when the steam engine changed everything, it was the biggest piece of—the most advanced piece of technology they had— It made sense that we started to have like Freudian theories where essentially the mind was depicted as having this pressure from below. Things got repressed and that repression of like sexuality and eros, that repression caused energy to come up and caused us to do other things like paint pictures and make governments and build civilization because we had repressed our sexuality. It was like the mind was a steam engine. And today, obviously, we talk about computer. We talk about uh, software. And things were hardwired, but our software is this. We can change the software, but if you're hardwired to do something, all that stuff. When Isaac Newton published his theories in 1687, that changed the way people looked at things, right? Suddenly you had guys like Adam Smith saying, you know, the economy doesn't need To be manipulated, an invisible hand will manipulate the economy for the better if each person tries to better his life. You know, that kind of, I think, derives from the ideas of Newton that God isn't sitting around making the planets turn around, that gravity does this. God made the world to work. He made the world to do the things he does. Even, I think, the Constitution, the the idea that people with the least least amount of government can still govern themselves just in the same way the planets move themselves around the world. But all these things also have false effects, right? These, these metaphors, these ideas that come out of science, they're our, our ideas. They're not science. They're our ideas about science, and we make mistakes. So, for instance, I believe that N- Newton—I think it's pretty clear that Newton gave people the, the idea that there either was no God— or that God was sort of, had sort of left what they call the deus absconditus, that he had made the world and then disappeared. Because if, there were, if everything was working mechanically, if it didn't work, it didn't need to be adjusted, well, maybe God wasn't there at all. Maybe it was material all the way down. Maybe it was just a clockwork that had been left here by some strange, in some strange manner uh, and was still running. Maybe it didn't even need God to make the clock. Science has generated an incredible amount of error. I mean, I think Freud is, is a good example. He he speaks as if he's speaking science. That's why his ideas caught on so much. But when you go and actually read what he says, he hasn't got any science. He's got a couple of patients who said a couple of things and his own ideas. He did psychoanalysis on himself. And then he said this applies to everyone. The th- same thing with Marx trying to t- uh, cause trying to make uh, the economy a, a science, which it really isn't because the human mind, the human mind knows more about what a pair of shoes is worth at any given moment than any computer can ever figure out. What does it mean when a, a pair of shoes in the winter, a pair of shoes on the beach, a pair of shoes in one situation and another situation, it's going to be worth different things. But only the human mind can figure that out. Uh, and and the mistakes that we've made have been really telling. And the rise of science has caused us to do stupid stupid things with our society. You know, uh, Paul Johnson makes this point in his excellent book about uh, the modern age, the modern world, I think it's called. Um, But he talks about how the theory of relativity made people think that, oh... there was more morality was relative. Everything was relative. Morality was relative. Uh, Ideas are relative. There's no, there's no absolute worth. And he says the mistake that they made was the theory of relativity is actually not about relativity. It's actually about things that are not relative, right? It is about things. It's about the speed of light, which is an absolute and everything is relative to that. And really that's more, a better metaphor for the mind of God. This whole idea The whole idea that science has generated, that reason is going to guide us, that reason is the best guide we had. It's the perfect guide to all, but it's not true. It's not true. It's reasonable to say, for instance, that abortion makes women's lives easier. It's reasonable to say that you can use the bodies of non-productive people to give extra life to productive people. That's perfectly reasonable to say it's just an atrocity. It's just wrong. It's just evil. Reason is a tool. Science is a tool, but they don't guide us in moral matters in matters of love and all the important things. They just provide information. And we, our bodies, are engendered mortal bodies, are engines for understanding life. You don't follow science. You don't follow the science. You lead the science with your moral sense. And even, even when it comes to moral guides, like the Bible, the Bible is a map of morality, but only we can navigate the territory, the actual human life of reality. The battle that we're in right now is is a battle between globalism and nationalism. I think that's the central battle with what we're having right now. It, it's not quite clear because we think we're battling with the left and with the right, but I think it goes way beyond that. It's a battle between those who believe that experts should run the world, those who believe in that that science, reason, is going to solve everything. So like Obama said, if I could just close the door, if it weren't for all this darn democracy, I could just close the door and consult with some experts and come up with the solution. And those of us who believe that the human being is a moral guide and a guide to wisdom that no machine, no reason can actually uh, compare to. I mean, I think that we believe that a mother dealing with her child uh, is going to do a better job than an expert on child care is going to do with that child. We believe, you know, there's a terrible story, uh, just an absolute um, shocking story written by Abigail Abigail Schreier uh, in City Journal. And you should look it up. It's just amazing. Uh, Abigail Schreier in in City Journal. It's about this financial consultant in Seattle. And he's uh, a faithful Muslim guy and he's got uh, kids. He's got four kids, I think. And she calls him Ahmed, but that's not his name. It's not his real name. And one of his kids has um, autism. He's on the autistic spectrum. And as the kid turns 13 and he starts to have uh, problems in school and problems with girls, he gets very upset because he can't quite break through and connect like a, a normal kid. And he starts to get suicidal. So they take the kid into the hospital and... Ahmed now gets a phone call from the hospital saying, listen, uh, you know, we've studied your kid, uh, your daughter, uh, your, we studied your daughter, and your daughter needs to be taken in for gender reassignment. And Ahmed keeps his head, right, because he realizes he's in dang, dangerous waters here. And he calls up a friend of his who's a psychiatrist and a friend who's a lawyer, and they both tell him the same thing. They say, if you go into the, this, this is in Washington state. He said, if you go into that, this hospital and make any remark that can be taken as anti-transgender, you know, transphobic, they will take your child away from you. They will call Child Protective Services and these evil, sick, twisted people who are running your government in Washington state are going to take this child away from you. And he may be taken off and butchered uh, in this uh, horrific Nazi uh, trans operations that they do on children. uh, and, And you'll lose him. You'll lose control by the law, by according to the law, you will lose control of your child and they will be free to turn him into a girl, which is kind of, you know, it's like a horror movie. It's like a horror movie. So Allah bless the sky, right? The sky is a faithful Muslim and may Allah's light shine upon the sky. He does something I'm not sure I could have done. He keeps his head. He keeps his head and he goes into the hospital and he says, absolutely, we're going to take this boy in for gender reassignment right away. I, I you, could, Absolutely, that's what we're going to do. They give him bad, They say, great. And they give him the kid. He moves his entire family out of the state to get away from these monsters, these horror movie monsters. That's the fight we're in. See, the fight we're in is whether you believe that a man of faith, a loving father is going to do the right thing by his son or whether you believe you are stupid ideas are science. I'm science. That's like what Fauci said. I'm the science. If you believe that you are the science, you are the expert, that you who doesn't never met this kid before in your life, you are going to decide that your sick mind that has imposed this absolute horror show on on the universe that has nothing to do with reality, you are going to have the Uh, the say over everybody. And that's the the global vision. The global vision is that the experts in Davos or wherever we put them at the UN, wherever we put them, are going to make the decisions for you. You don't even have to elect these guys. You can elect your local guys, but they're not going to have any power. It's going to all be done for you at the top. This is why the world is going to be a. The world is becoming a global place. There's nothing we can do to stop that. The world is going to be a global place. I have a cell phone. You have a cell phone. I once got. I was in Afghanistan. Got a call from Hollywood. I picked up the phone and was like, "Hi, you know, I want to talk to you about that script. Like, I can't talk to you now. I'm in Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, this is a global world. It is going to be a global world. But the question is, what values will it have? Is it going to be a global world of competing nations where? Our ide- like like this is a country of competing states where our ideas Western ideas have a chance to triumph of, over others that is what I want what I want is a global world that has been colonized by the West I want a, a, a global world where the West where Western culture rules I am in favor of colonialism not violent colonialism not conquest colonialism but competitive, Uh, ideas, a world of ideas competing, nations competing, where the best ideas win. Because I know then we will have a global world, but it will be a global world run by Western standards. And that's what I'm looking for. So is your love life in the doldrums? It's probably because you're not going to rockauto.com. And I know what you're saying. You're saying rockauto.com, isn't that where you can go on your computer and get inexpensive parts for your car? Well, yes, it is. But that makes you look so intelligent that you don't instead get in your car and pretend to drive down. Your car's not running, so you can't drive down to the auto parts store. Uh, so you pretend to drive down there and pretend your car has a part. No, no. Go on rockauto.com. And and when you do it, you get to say rockauto.com and your love life will turn around like that, my friend. When you say rockauto.com, women know that you are smart enough not to sit in your car, which isn't running, but to go on your computer and get good, inexpensive auto parts. This is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. They know what they're doing and they do it well. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck and write Clavin in their how did you hear about us box so they know we sent you and write Clavin the same way you say rockauto.com. You got it in Clavin, K-L-A-V-A-N. K-L-A, the idea of colonialism, true colonialism, of ideas is what is driving the left insane right now because it's happening whether they like it or not. It's actually happening in spite of them and through them. And I'll show you what I mean, because a lot of times it's really good to step back for a minute. You know, I I like to think, what is this going to look like in a hundred years? What's it going to look like in a thousand years? And it's going to look very, very different, right? You're going to see, you're going to see things happening uh, in a very different way. I I have this theory. uh, I guess it's a theory that, you know, God works out his will, his goodwill in history, uh, but we supply the bloodshed, right? <laughs> you know, God, God. I, I think like, for instance, the Reformation, the churches falling apart, uh, going from the Catholic Church to the Catholic and Protestant Church is a way that we can work out the almost impossible um conflict between the individual and the institutions that make society, uh, the Protestantism being more individualistic, uh, Catholicism being more uh, institutional. I think that this is something that God wants us to work out in history. We're the ones who say, oh, let's kill each other. Let's set people on fire if they don't believe in the mat- in transubstantiation. That'll be fun. That'll be a good idea. We're the ones who bring the bloodshed. But, but actually, things can happen Ideas can spread without bloodshed. They can just spread by simply succeeding in a competitive uh, field. And I think that that's the kind of globalization, that's the kind of colonialization I want to have. And these, th- these people know, the left knows, that this is going to happen whether they like it or not. I, I think they know this in their hearts and they are just resisting it with everything they've got. There was an amazing interview with Mara Gay is on the editorial board of the New York Times. This is the same genius who backed up the tweet that said, remember after uh, Mike Bloomberg was running for president and he spent like $500 million on ads and he failed and somebody tweeted that he could have given each American a million dollars from that and still had money left over, which is not true. He would have, if he'd split that up among all Americans, each person would have gotten about a buck and a half and she pushed this. So now she's pushing very hard this Reichstag, fire idea that the left is selling that January 6 was the oh my gosh the greatest threat to dem- democracy and the greatest insurrection since the Civil War uh, you know 17 guys wearing stupid Viking helmets running around the <laughs> capitol uh, and this and and it's all about race. And she gives this interview um, where she says, and this is, we have to give her courage for this. She actually left Manhattan and went to Long Island. And I know, I know, that's like, you know, for, for a New York Times reporter, that's like going into the jungle with gun and camera. You know, that's amazing. She went to Long Island and she had a terrifying uh, experience. Here's Mara Gay, cut five.
3: We have to figure out how to get every American a place at the table in this democracy, but how to separate Americanness America from whiteness. Until we can confront mm. that and talk about that, this is really going to continue. I was on Long Island this weekend uh, visiting a really dear friend, and I was really disturbed. I saw, you know, dozens and dozens of pickup trucks with, uh, you know, uh, explicatives against Joe Biden uh, on the back of them, yep. uh, Trump yep. flags, and in some cases just dozens of American flags, which you know, uh, is also just disturbing because essentially the message was clear. It was, this is my country. This is not your country. I own this.
0: She's very, this is right after Memorial Day. So she's very disturbed by those American flags. We're celebrating uh, the memory of those people, many of them maybe even from Long Island, who went out and died so that Mary Gay could say the stupid stuff she says. But she's disturbed by seeing these American flags. Now, obviously, the right just climbed down her throat for this. But the New York Times, a former newspaper, defended her. They said the New York Times editorial board member Maragay's comments on MSNBC have been irresponsibly taken out of context. That's why I played as much of them as I did. Her argument was that Trump and many of his supporters have politicized the American flag. The attacks on her today are ill-informed and grounded. In bad faith, my friends at the uh, Media Research Center parked a truck with an American flag outside the Times office, it says only the New York Times is disturbed by this flag. But no, no, this is, this is garbage. What she was saying was very, very clear. She was saying that the message of an American flag held by a Trump supporter is this is our country and Amer- America is whiteness. Now, who says America is whiteness? Who says it? I didn't say it. I didn't say America is whiteness. The Trump supporters don't say America is whiteness. The New York Times said America. There are two kinds of people who say America is whiteness, the Ku Klux Klan and the New York Times. Democrats, essentially, the Ku Klux Klan and the New York Times. They are the ones who say we have racism in our DNA. Our founding was in 1619 when the slaves came over. It wasn't when we said, oh, you know, all men are created equal. That's the founding to me. That's not the founding to The New York Times. The New York Times says this country is whiteness. So if you're waving a New York Times, a, a, an American flag, you are essentially declaring whiteness. Sonny Hostin said the same thing on uh, The View. Here she is. I'm so surprised, actually,
3: uh, that she is receiving this kind of backlash. And as Megan mentioned during the last segment, you know, when someone of color, a black woman, is telling you her feelings, people need to listen uh, and not, you know, (laughs) repudiate it and not say, well, that can't be true.
0: What if it's not true? I'd think a, a black woman with one leg and a bad ear can be talking crap, just like a white man who's <laughs> in perfect condition. I mean, anybody can talk garbage and that she's talking garbage. But let me let me just see if we step back for a little. What is what this actually looks like? What are they afraid? Why is America white? I mean, why? What if you just took race out of it? I, I believe that race is a delusion. Not that there aren't different races. Obviously, there are different cultures. Nobody thinks that a guy from Italy is the same as a guy from England. They're going to be affected in different ways. The weather affects, and all kinds of things affect people. But the ideas that we're talking about, the ideas that form this country, because this country was formed on ideas, out of ideas, and these ideas developed in cultures, they don't seep out of your epidermis. You know, They come from a million different influences, and they are part of this great conversation that we've had in Western countries conver- uh, uh, culture where one generation talks to another generation. The great minds uh, fight with each other and battle with each other. And we let them speak. We let them all speak and disagree so that we feel that we're going to somehow move together to a higher truth with this argument going on. You know, to put, the, put, to put this simply, right, there, there's an old expression. I, uh, Horace, I said, I think, said it. The poet Horace said that Rome conquered Greece Uh, And Greece conquered Rome. In other words, Rome conquered Greece but then adopted her culture. They loved Greek culture so much that Rome essentially became a Hellenic empire and spread... Hellenic thought and Greek thought, Alexander the Great spread Greek thought, and then Rome conquered uh, the Hellenic world and became Hellenic too. But then Christianity conquered Rome, right? Rome became a Christian country, and then the barbarians, the German barbarians who were the illegal immigrants of their time, Rome spent a lot of money trying to kill off these barbarians who weren't even trying to get into Rome. They were just passing through, and Rome was so afraid that they were going to come that they went out and attacked them and kept getting beat. And these, you know, the people who think that everything is race, should remember that Rome thought the German tribes were a lesser race, and yet the German tribes, after Rome fell, went on to conquer Rome and then become the countries of Europe. But in fact, just in the same way that Rome conquered Greece and Greece conquered Rome, the German tribes conquered Rome and Rome conquered them. They became Romanized because they became Christianized. They became Christian and becoming Christian, they got all these cultures together, right? They got Greek culture and Roman culture and Jewish culture. Uh, All of these things formed the countries of Europe. It's not a, a race issue. That is just God working his will in the world. And the English version of that mix, the English version of that mix is what really formed America. It was the fights they were having in the Reformation, the way those ideas developed in Christian thought and uh, uh, the Christian battle between the Protestants and the Catholics, all of that, the way that was unfolding in England really fed into the thoughts uh, that were going on in uh, America as America was being founded. And so... When you come into America and you become an American and you start to adopt American ideas, whether you like it or not, you are being colonized. You are being colonized by ideas. You're being conquered by Greeks and Jews and Rome and Christian and English values. All of those things are becoming you. They're becoming who you are. So when a person of any color, of any religion, of any stripe at all, says is asking for equality, is asking for freedom, is asking for respect as an individual made in the shape of God. Those ideas didn't come out of China. They didn't come out of Africa. They didn't come out of the Middle East. They didn't come out of anything but this amalgam of influences that formed Western culture. What the people are complaining about, right? What these people are complaining about are they wouldn't even know to complain them if they weren't Westerners, if they weren't made in God's image, if they weren't part of the Christian uh, panoply of, of history that we see unfolding, to get the things that they want. They have to become the thing they've taught themselves to hate, and they hate it because they're racists. They hate it because they think the most important thing about Thomas Jefferson or Socrates or anybody else is this color of their skin. That's what they think is important about that, and that's why they're being driven insane. It's literally driving them mad because the thing they want is the thing they've taught themselves to hate because they are living under the delusion of of racism. That is why. Because racism has made them insane. They think like, oh... That's a, you know, probably, I don't know this, nobody knows this for a fact, but probably the guy who discovered fire was black, right? It's Probably an African, maybe even a woman. Maybe she's going, going. You know, I, I could cook that thing. <laughs> that thing that that Bob, the caveman, killed. I might be able to cook that thing. Who knows who it was? Are you going to live in the dark because you're a white man? And you don't want to culturally appropriate fire. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's that's the, the crazy uh, condition they've got themselves in because they are racist, and we are saying no, no, no. It's all about the ideas. And you know what? You know what? If the guy who came up with that idea is an Englishman, and the English want to pat themselves on the back, and, and they've done bad things, like all countries have done bad things, but they want to say hurrah for Locke, you know, what a great idea he had. Great great. Give them the bragging rights. They should have all the bragging rights in the world. I just want those ideas because I want to be free, because I want people to be treated equally, because I want people to understand that I was made in the image of God and they were made in the image of God. And I want everybody to understand that because I want to colonialize the entire planet with those ideas for one reason and one reason only. They're true. They're good. They are the good and the true and the beautiful. And that's all there is to it. so i'd like to tell you that i have ring security on my home but i have no home <laughs> i have nowhere to live i'm going from one airbnb to another but every night i go to sleep and i dream that one day soon i will be able to move into my new home and put a ring affordable whole home security system in there it is so easy to install you can do it yourself and it's never been more important to be able to see who's there and what's happening anytime around the house inside or outside and with Ring security. All you got to do, no matter where you are, are all you got to do is look at the app on your phone. You can see who's there. You can talk to them. You can find out what they want and just feel safe that your home is safe. Start protecting your home today with Ring Alarm and dream of the day when I, too, can protect my home with Ring Alarm because I have a home. Go to ring.com slash Claven to get your Ring Alarm security kit today. You can build the system that's right for your home and have it up and running in minutes. So that's something to look forward to for me and for you. Go to ring.com slash Claven. That's ring.com slash Claven. And from now on, when anybody comes to your house, you say to them, How do you spell Claven? How do you spell it? And if they know, call the police. They are driving themselves insane. There is a woman, Dr. Aruna Kalanani, she is a psychiatrist, so you already know she's nuts, right? She's a New York City-based psychiatrist, and she went to Yale University on a panel discussion, and she was telling the story about how she learned to eschew whiteness, to get rid of whiteness. This is a psychiatrist. This is a person who's responsible for other people's mental health. She was talking about how she learned to eschew whiteness. She was going to her therapist, and her therapist kept saying, I'm really upset that you're so angry. You know, I'm trying to get at some of your anger here. And then she had this brain flash. She realized, no, 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 it's not me. It's whiteness. I'm angry. It's not my fault I'm angry. I'm angry because there's whiteness. And she started to detach herself from all whiteness. She said there are no good apples in the white bunch. This is what she said. Cut 12.
2: Around five years ago, I took some action. I systemically, systematically, systematically, I'm going to do, white ghosted most of my white friends, and I got rid of a couple of white BIPOCs that snuck in my throat too. I stopped watching the news. Once I started, I couldn't stop. I had less than 1% left. It was also public service. I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, daring their body, and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively gently. With a dungeon life
0: set. Like I did the world a f-ing favor. She <laughs> did the world a favor by killing any white man she saw. She's a, this is a psychiatrist. This is the person I want to go trust with my mental health. He later said she was speaking metaphorically, but she didn't sound like she was speaking metaphorically to I me. Mean, she says part of the other thing she says she says we're now in a psychological predicament because white people feel that we are bullying them when we bring up race. They feel that we should be thanking them for all that they have done for us. You know, you know, in a sense that's true. Except I don't think it's a matter of race we i think anybody who comes to america anybody who gets to partake of uh, these inc- this incredible culture of freedom, of equality, of revolution, of argument, of, of uh, multiplicity of ideas. Anybody who gets to partake of that instead of just having to toe the line, uh, just having to go to one church, just having to do what the Communist Party tells you to do, having the Communist Party tell you what your social worth is if you love them and what it, how it goes down if you don't love them. Anybody should be grateful. Anybody should be grateful. Why wouldn't you be grateful? The idea came from England. I'm grateful. I'm not an Englishman. I'm grateful to the English for bringing these ideas. I'm grateful to the Romans. I'm grateful to the Greeks and to the Jews because I don't think of them as having acted according to their race. They acted according to God's will and the multiplicity, the incredible number of influences that create a culture. Unbelievable, unthinkable numbers of influences create a culture. But they go crazy. Here's, a, here's another one. This one I just love. I, this just for laughs. I got to read. Dr. Donald Moss, a published author who teaches at the New York Psychoanalytic Institute. He published a paper on having whiteness in the Journal of the American Psychoanalytic Association, right? He's a white guy. He says, whiteness is a condition one first acquires and then one has, a malignant parasitic-like condition to which white people have a particular (laughs) susceptibility. The the condition is foundational, generating characteristic ways of being in one's body, in one's mind, and in one's world. Parasitic whiteness renders its host's appetites voracious, insatiable, and perverse. I know that's me. These deformed appetites particularly target non-white peoples. Once established, these appetites are nearly impossible to eliminate you might as well enjoy them then, I guess. Effective treatment consists of a combination of psychic and social historical interventions. In other words, you have to explain it. They've driven themselves insane because racism is a lie. Racism is a lie. If you were made in God's image, if you believe we were made in God's image, it, that you know the Bible doesn't say white guys were made in God's image or black guys. It says everybody. Everybody was made in God's image. And if you believe that, you know that racism is a lie. And once you start to follow that lie you're in this bind because you hate people of a certain color white people right and yet the culture that you're living in that is th- that you're thriving in that you're demanding serve you by giving you its goodness Is a white white culture. If you put the race aside and say, "Ah, you know, it's a culture that came from all these different places and so what, that's great, you know, good for them. They're the ones who happen to to be the carriers of these great ideas. They're the ones who happen to be the conduits of these good ideas. And now I'm going to drink those ideas down to the dregs and live an American life. And what a lucky SOB I am, which is my feeling about it. You can't say that because you're a racist so you have to hate them and yet you want to become the thing you hate and that is what is driving them out of their minds and the only solution is what I've come to call the great forgetting you know this thing where we're going to forget Christianity and we think we're going that's going to let us free to go into the future but it's just bringing us back into the past because once you let go of the truth all you've got is lies and lies have been around forever once you let go of Christianity a Christian culture of western culture of freedom and equality and uh, and Christianity, essentially the underlying values of Christianity, once you let go of that, there's no post-Christian world. There's only, only going back to the pre-Christian world and that's the world we're in, a world of like sexual confusion, a world where babies are sacrificed for the uh, happiness of adults, uh, you know, a world where uh, uh, where racism has become hip again, you are know, right? You, know, you just hate whiteness instead of blackness and you're good, you know, if I can, you know, and as I always say, the devil doesn't care who does the hating as long as the hating gets done. You have to have this craziness, you know, in California, they want to pass a law that says that uh, when you teach mathematics, you can't teach mathematics because mathematics are too white. Uh, And so they say that, uh, you you know, white supremacy culture, uh, is in the mathematics classroom, uh, if you focus on getting the right answer, if you focus on thinking in a linear fashion or showing your work, all of that is white, upholding the idea that there are always right and wrong answers perpetuates objectivity. And that's racist because that's white, too. So in other words, it, you have to forget the truth itself. You have to forget reality itself in order to f- solve this bind they're in. If they just let go of the racism, if they just let go of the racism, life would be a celebration for them. You know, there's this guy I saw, and I want to play this for you just so you get a chance to hear it, Mark Robinson, Lieutenant Governor of North Carolina. He is now running for governor, which is funny because he's, he's a great big black guy. And the gov- current governor, he's the Lieutenant Governor. The current governor is this piece of wonder bread. He just looks like a piece of bleached wonder bread. He's a Democrat. But this guy is a Republican. Here's the speech he's making to people. He was talking about 9-11 and how the firemen ran into the danger to do the right thing. Here's what he says.
4: We've got to run to the trouble, folks. And what is the trouble? The trouble is the Biden administration that is seeking to turn this country into a socialist hellhole. The trouble is Antifa that wants to roam the streets and beat you into submission. The trouble is Black Lives Matter. It claims to care about the lives of black people, but has turned a blind eye. While violence in black communities are taking lives at a genocidal rate, they've turned a blind eye. That's where the trouble is and that's what we've got to run to. And we've got all the right in the world on our side. And there ain't no reason to be afraid. And there ain't no reason to not take the challenge dead on. Because I'm gonna tell you who we come from, folks. We don't come from some weak, jelly-backed, spineless people. That's not who we come from, none of us. And it doesn't matter what color you are, what nation your folks hail from, how much money you got, We all share the same name. We are Americans.
0: See, I I get letters. I get quite frequently get letters. Why don't you care that we're being replaced? Why don't you care about this move to take America away from white people? Why don't you care that we're, you know, being inundated with not? And I don't care. I don't care. I'm not worried about it. I'm not worried about it at all because I don't believe in racism. I do not do race. If that guy, if that Mark Robinson, if he is not my brother and my fellow American, nobody is. Nobody is. And we what I see in this world is God working out. His idea, teaching us his ideas through history, and we bring the bloodshed, and we bring the hatred, and we bring the bigotry, and we bring the racism. Let that stuff go. Let that stuff go and start to deal with the ideas, start to search for the truth, start to understand what makes people thrive, what brings them closer to God, what makes them happier, what makes them free. Start to think in those terms and all of the madness goes away, all of the anger goes away. I want to colonialize the world with Western culture, but I want to do it by simply showing how much joy and success that culture creates. Hey, you know Father's Day is coming up. I, I forget to. I always forget to remind my children that they have to send me some expensive gift. Or you know what would be great? A my pillow. My pillow is a great gift because my pillow products. They don't go flat. You can wash and dry them as many times as you want, and they maintain their shape. They're made in the USA. And they are incredibly comfortable, and I know this because I never sleep, and I'm lying on my MyPillow and thinking, hey, this is incredibly comfortable. If I slept, I would be asleep by now. If you don't have a MyPillow or know someone who doesn't, now is the time to get one, and especially if it is your dad and you want to show them what a wonderful thing dads are. You know, right? you want to get a MyPillow because this is a great time to do it because for a limited time, MyPillow is offering their premium MyPillows for their lowest cost price ever. You can get a queen-size premium My Pillow, which is regularly $69.98. You can get it for only $29.98. That is 40 bucks in saving. That is a good deal. Now is the time to buy. Not only are you getting the lowest price ever, but they are the best Father's Day gift you can think of. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listeners square and use promo code DAILYWIRE. You will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and MyPillow towel sets. Or you can call 800-951-7163. Again, use promo code DAILYWIRE. Visit MyPillow.com now or call 800-951-7163. So while we're talking about people coming into America and being assimilated in, uh, into America colonized, as it were, I want to talk about gangster movies. Uh, gangster movies are one of my favorite genres of movies. I have sometimes wondered, to my shame, whether there is a gangster movie so bad that I wouldn't like it, but I don't think I've ever found one. And I wanted to recommend some of the ones that I love so much, and when I went on and made a list... Uh, To look for a list of great gangster movies, they were all modern. They were all like The Godfather and Goodfellas and The Departed and things like that. And, you know, they talk about The Sopranos, too, though it's a TV show. But gangster films had their start in the 1930s, uh, which was a reaction to the Roaring Twenties, basically, the rise of uh, gangland as um, Prohibition made Illegal alcohol such a big business, and people started shooting each other uh, to to take that business over, and a lot of these guys who were in the gangster business uh, were immigrants. They were Italians, they were Irish, they were Jews, and, of of course, they fed into the dislike of immigrants— Uh, But at the same time, another thing that was growing up because of the immigrants who had been pouring in right around that time at the end of at the turn of the century, the 18th, uh, the 19th into the 20th century, these immigrants had been pouring in. And one of the things that grew up out of that was Hollywood, right? The rise of essentially a Jewish industry that was one of the most successful and most pro-American industries ever to be made in this country and it's unfortunate it has been poisoned now by leftism, but at the time it was uh, a wonderful industry and a great ad for America. So, Hollywood is looking at these gangsters And at the one point, they kind of want to prove that these are not representative of the immigrant experience. They want to put forward their message of inclusiveness that would include the Jews who are making the movie and other immigrants who are making the movies. But at the same time, they want to profit off the violence and the kind of romance of outlaw masculinity that gangsters represent, this kind of uh, the freedom uh, and sexiness of, of being, of having no morals, of just taking what you want. And as these films started, three of the greatest films uh, ever made were the first gangster films, three of my favorite films of all time. And you have to understand when I talk about these that you have to adjust for time. These are old movies. They are uh, the acting is different. The timing is different. Obviously, the special effects aren't great. So you have to kind of adjust. Just like when you're reading a Victorian novel, you have to sort of adjust for the different languages. And it's the same thing. One of the first, uh, two of them came out at almost the exact same time, 1931. Uh, One of them was Little Caesar which was the breakout film of Edward G. Robinson. I don't even know if young people know who Eddie G. is anymore. Edward G. Robinson, you may have seen him in Soylent Green. He was in that. You may have seen Bugs Bunny do the, imi- the famous imitation of, yeah, see, see, I'm going gonna, gonna to take out, see? You know, <laughs> and he was a great, great actor, made a living as a gangster, hilariously, of course. He was a very cultured uh, Jewish gentleman who spoke like se- seven languages. But Little Caesar was based on a novel, uh, a really good novel, by the way, a really fun novel by W.R. Burnett. It was uh, directed by Mervyn Leroy, one of the great early directors. He directed I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang. He helped produce The Wizard of Oz. He was responsible in a lot of ways for the success of The Wizard of Oz. And this, the problem they have with these pictures is they wanted to give you lectures about how bad it was to be a gangster, but they also wanted to capitalize on the fun violence and sexuality, because this is before the Hays Code, so they could still have people sleep together, they could still have women in states of undress. Uh, it was, they're quite sexy pictures, although not this one particularly, but they are very sexy pictures. But they wanted to show you that these guys were guys who wanted to make it good. And when in the first scene of Little Caesar, uh, Edward G. Robinson, who plays Little Caesar, is in this, um, in this diner, and it looks very much like that famous painting you may have seen, uh, *Nighthawks*, which was painted about ten years later, uh, and it was said to have been inspired by a Hemingway story called *The Killers*, which was also a gangster story. So it's possible this scene was also inspired by *The Killers*, since it looks very much like this scene. And, and Eddie G is talking to his pal. They're both petty gangsters in this outlying area, and Eddie G is talking about how he wants to be in the big time. And this is what he says.
3: Yeah, money's all right, but it ain't everything. Now, be somebody. Look hard at a bunch of guys and know that they'll do anything you tell them. Have your own way or nothing. Be somebody. You'll get there, Rico. Yeah. You'll soon. Yo, This was our last stand in this burg. We're pulling out. Where are we going? East. Where things break big.
0: Things break, break, yeah, yeah. And it's really great. The guy who he's with uh, says he doesn't want to be a gangster anymore, he wants to be a dancer. And you hear that and you think, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. But in fact, George Raft, uh, who became a famous gangster movie star uh, and is in one of these pictures as well, uh, George Raft started out as a dancer and also was a driver for the mob and then went on to become an actor playing gangsters in the movies. Uh, so, but you can't help identify with the guy, right? He wants to make it big. He, wants to, he's class, he doesn't have class, but he wants to have class. He doesn't have power, but he wants to have power. He is capitalism without values. I'm always saying that right-wingers took a really bad uh, turn. They took a, a wrong turn when they started pushing capitalism without uh, underlying values, saying that capitalism was going to solve everything. This is a picture of capitalism without values. But you still, you root for him even as he rises up and then, of course, falls. And uh, all these movies end the same way. They all rise to the top and then they fall and get killed. And he had this fam- the famous last line as he's lying dead. He says, Mother of Mercy, his name is Rico. He says, Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? One of the funniest, one of the f- most famous lines in movies. At the same time this was being made, Jimmy Cagney was breaking out in his picture, uh, Public Enemy. And right afterwards, they would make a picture together. And in Little Caesar, there's an idea that Caesar, that Rico is gay, uh, that he doesn't like women, he really has a very powerful relationship with another guy. Uh, the author of the book, Burnett, complained that he was had been turned gay in the film, which he wasn't in the book. But in Public Enemy, Cagney brings this sexual dynamism to his gangster character. He's an Irish gangster uh, and he has the mom who wants him to go be good and the good brother who's doing things the right way. But he just wants everything and he wants it now. Uh, He's a violent, angry guy, but he finds a girlfriend and they're living together. They're not married. And uh, he finds a girlfriend and he finally just gets sick of her because he's about to fall in love with the platinum blonde. Um, and, And this is one of the most famous scenes in early movies. I mean, they're this must be one of the ten most famous scenes. But it made Cagney a sex symbol. Okay, She's nagging him. May Clark is, uh, played, plays the girlfriend. And she's nagging him and he goes off on her.
3: Did You got a drink in the house? Well, not before breakfast, dear.
0: I didn't ask you for any lip. I asked you if you had a drink.
3: I know, Tom, but... Well, gee, I, I wish... The- there you go, that wishing stuff again. I wish you was a wishing well. I could tie a bucket to you and sink you. Maybe you found someone you like better.
0: <laughs> he picks up a grapefruit, if you're listening, and he stuffs it in her face. Walks away from the table, and that scene made Jimmy Cagney a sex symbol for women. So, guys, don't ask me, man, don't ask me (laughs) how that works. But apparently, a grapefruit in the face on screen. Don't try that at home, but on screen, a grapefruit in the face uh, makes you a sex symbol with women. So you know how much I love my Raycon earbuds, and I just that tune that they play when you turn them on gets stuck in my head. So we wanted to find the tune. Our producer, Rob, was looking for the tune, but we couldn't find it. So I'm just going to, I'm going to sing the tune for you. Now, it, it, this is, I have a beautiful voice. You'll, you'll love this. It goes... Raycon. And that's how you know that you are going to get great sound over your earbuds. They have a noise canceling aspect. They look terrific. You don't look like an insect when you wear them. They look great. They feel even better. They come in a range of cool colors and with customizable gel tips included for a comfortable in-ear fit, which is really good for me because I have strangely Shaped ears. Listen up. Raycon's offering 15% off all their products for my listeners. Here's what you got to do to get it. Go to buy buyraycon, That's B-U-Y-Raycon.com slash Claven. You get 15% off your entire Raycon order, and it's such a good deal. You want to grab a pair and a spare. That's 15% off at buyraycon.com slash clavin. Buyraycon.com slash clavin. And you want to say, how do you sing Raycon? It's Raycon, but how do you spell Claven? Ha! Caught you. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. The problem that they had with these films was that these films, and people were complaining about this all the time, and they would try and give it a moral, you know, ending, but it was not until later when the Hayes Code came in that they had to have unhappy endings, the bad guys couldn't thrive. So we see this guy. He's got all the girls in the world. they are falling all over him. He's living with this girl. Uh, he can kill anybody he wants. There's something romantic and powerful about it. And they would try and put these things like Little Caesar Begins with those who li- a little card that says those who live by the sword uh, die by the sword. And then there's this film, Scarface. And Scarface is directed by one of the greatest uh, this is again at the same time, and it's all before the code. Uh, Scarface, I think, I, I guess it's maybe 34, it's a little bit later, 33. This Starface. Scarface is directed by the great Howard Hawks, one of the greatest of all American directors, bringing up Baby, Only Angels Have Wings, His Girl Friday. It just goes on The Big Sleep, Red River. I mean, he was just a great, great director. Uh, and it has Paul Muni in it. And Paul Muni was an actor very much ahead of his time, almost a Brando-like uh, actor. And he plays a guy based on Al Capone. Uh, he plays him. As a um, almost like an animal, you know, he plays him as this Italian gorilla almost. Uh, But, uh, you know, still, he has this charm and he has this way with women. And Hawks loved talk, tough, talk, talk, tough, tough talking dames. He loved tough talking dames. And they were called the the Howard Hawks woman was a tough talking dame. And here is Paul Muni as the gangster uh, making it up to what's her name? Penny or something like that? Poppy, I can't remember. Here it is.
3: Every time I see you, you look better. That's a cute hat. Please, my stockings. What's the Well, Don't do that, Tony. They're brand new. Hands up, eh? No, feet. You know, I know lots of girls. Redheads and blondes and all kinds. They all like me. Yeah, you're pretty good, eh? I'm the best. Are you going to eat by any chance? I'm not hungry. Except for you. You got something I like. Yeah, I'm nice with a lot of dressing. You work fast, don't you, Tony? No, say, I've been waiting a long time. I'm crazy for you. Everybody say Tony Camardi, he's a big shot. He's got everything he wants. Yeah, I got everything but what I want. You understand?
0: I love the sexuality of him, of her saying, get off my stockings and we can see his hands. And she says, hands off. And he says, you mean, she says, you mean feet. In other words, he's playing footsie with her under the table and she's afraid he's going to tear her stocking. Now, you guys may have seen Scarface with Al Pacino. Uh, That is dedicated to Howard Hawks and the other writer on this film. And it steals a lot, including the weird um uh, incestuous relationship between the gangster and his sister but here they have this problem right people are complaining the Hayes office is is the threat of the Hayes office, the threat of a code of behavior imposed on the movies is, is already looming over the movie business and they want to avoid it. They do not want to get the what they call the church ladies. That's what they call them. They don't want the church ladies on their back because they're afraid this code of conduct will be imposed on them and they won't be able to make sexy, violent films like this. And these films uh, are getting the church ladies upset. So they're always putting messages in them. And the messages are real in the sense that the movie industry wants to put forward the idea that we shouldn't, we shouldn't accuse all immigrants of being gangsters uh, but at the same time they're sort of balancing off the fact that it's very romantic dramatic and sexy to see these guys make love to all these different women and kill anybody who gets in their way so they have this scene with a cop where the uh, the newspaper man wants to talk about this gangster because he's a colorful character and here's the cop's response
3: this fella come on what about him a story public's interested in he's a colorful character
0: colorful what color is a crawling
3: louse? Say, listen, that's the attitude of too many morons in this country. They think these big hoodlums are some sort of demigods. What do they do about a guy like Camonte? They sentimentalize, romance, make jokes about him. They had some excuse for glorifying our old western bad men. They met in the middle of the street, high noon, waiting for each other to draw. But these things sneak up and shoot a guy in the back and then run away. I guess you're right, Chief. Colorful. Did you read what happened the other day? car full of them chasing another down the street, broad daylight. Three kiddies playing hopscotch on the sidewalk get lead poured in their little bellies. When I think what goes on in the minds of these
0: lice, I want to vomit. And by the way, this is what real cops think about real gangsters. It actually is. I've talked to a lot of cops. It's exactly the way they get furious that they are romanticized in the movies because they know them. They know they're animals. They know they kill uh, innocent people and they just get furious about it. But at the same time, they're having that scene and sending that message. They're also making the film glorifying them. So they also have this other scene, which I just love, where they have a meeting between the town fathers. What are we going to do about organized crime? They've got the Tommy guns are coming in. What's what is going to happen? This is cut 28.
3: Don't blame the police. They can't stop machine guns from being run back and forth across the state lines. They can't enforce laws that don't exist. Then it's up to the federal government to do something about it. You're the government, all of you. Instead of trying to hide the facts, get busy and see that laws are passed that'll do some good, for instance. Pass the federal law that puts the gun in the same class as drugs and white slavery. Put teeth in the deportation act. These gangsters don't belong in this country. Half of them aren't even citizens. That's true. They bring nothing but disgrace to my people. All right. I'll tell you what to do. Make laws and see that they're obeyed if we have to have martial law to do it. The governor of New Mexico declared martial law to stop a bullfight. The governor of Oklahoma to regulate oil production. Surely gang rule and wholesale law defiance are more of a menace to the nation than the regulation of oil or a bullfight. The army will help. It's only American Legion. They offered their services over two years ago, and nobody ever called
0: on them. <laughs> so you get the message. The message is: do not take your political ideas from Hollywood. But they wanted to lecture you at the same time they wanted to make rake in the dough off these sexy, violent outlaw men uh, who are just appealing. They're appealing to us by nature. We can't help it. We, we want to see them. We want to see what they do. That is why one of the greatest uh, gangster movies is Goodfellas, because he admits that. And that's why Sh- Shapiro hates that film, because he says it's immoral. But I don't think it's immoral. I think he's telling us a truth about the gangsters. All these movies would change when the Hayes office came in about four years later. And maybe next week I'll do more about how the gangster movie changed after the Hayes office. But for now, I just want to point out that it's not Hollywood's fault. It's not Hollywood's fault people attract us is something very basic about the freedom, the violence and the sexuality of them that does appeal to us, at least as an idea, though in real life, I think the cops are right and they're terrible people. But We can't blame Hollywood. It's not their fault. It's us. So this is interesting. Wall Street has been telling people for years that 7% is a good return on your, your stocks. It's just not that trading they tell you the trading is so complex that you need a financial advisor and you don't real people are making 30 percent, 50 percent and even 100 percent a year on their money trading stocks, even when the market is tough. Carnivore Trading is an anonymous team of elite Wall Street strategists. They're legends among Wall Street heavy hitters, and now they've gone rogue. They're allowing everyday folks like us to see and mirror their explosive trades. If that sounds too good to be true, try Carnivore. They will let you see the trades they're making right now for free. Go to Get OurTrades.com and use promo code Clavin to get two weeks free. And if you join Carnivore Guarantees, you get five times your subscription fee or double your money back. Go to GetOurTrades.com, promo code Clavin, getourtrades.com, promo code Clavin. See the website for guarantee terms and conditions. Past performance is not a guarantee of future earnings. These are the people who really, really know how to spell Claven. It's K L A V A N. There are no It is no secret that the amount of content we're putting out is growing rapidly, both in numbers and in quality, from our new investigative journalism to our sports column to the Friday classic, The Andrew Klavan Show. There's a lot to see here and read, so much to see here and read that even the most avid Daily Wire member would be hard-pressed to keep up. But... Don't worry, we have a solution. You can now find all the conservative content you love wherever you are on the Daily Wire app. Even if you're not a Daily Wire subscriber, you'll be the first to know what's trending with mobile notifications for the latest news and all your favorite content only a touch away. Download the Daily Wire app and stay up to speed with the freshest conservative voices around no matter where you are. If there's anyone with an expansive supply of truth bombs, it's Candace Owens. And while we all love watching her drop them, it can be a little tricky when you're on the go. That's why we've made sure you get your weekly dose of logic, no matter where you are, with Candace, the audio podcast. Whether she's asking Donald Trump if she can be on her on his ticket in 2024 or enticing Adam Carolla to expose Hollywood conservatives or giving feminism the roast it deserves with her panel of guests, you're always guaranteed a smart, funny listening experience. So subscribe to and download Candace, the audio podcast on Apple, Spotify, or whatever your platform of choice may be. And if you like what you hear, be sure to leave a five-star review and keep Candace's podcast at the top of the charts. So as you know, we like to occasionally drag this show out of the muck of white supremacy and hatred and bigotry in which we usually wallow by bringing on an intelligent and sophisticated guest. Unfortunately, we couldn't do that this week, I brought, I brought on my son, Spencer Clavin, no relation, who just happens to be a brilliant podcaster himself. He, his podcast is called The Young Heretics. If you're not listening to it, you are genuinely missing out. You're also some kind of editor at the Claremont Review <laughs> Book, my absolutely favorite uh, journal. Uh, what are you, associate editor or?
1: Uh, at CRBI, I am associate editor. And, yes. and you are an editor at American Mind. At you? the American Mind, also, also. yes. You're yes. a busy guy. I am a busy guy. I have no idea how I got <laughs> in here. I just I <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I told security I, to stop I, <laughs> you, but nothing. I have hardly the faintest recollection of the last 30 minutes, even. Somebody put <laughs> makeup on. I, I mean, <laughs> I, hard to say. You
0: shoveled you yeah. <laughs> in. Yeah. You wrote a piece. Now, this is on the American Mind Substack. Right. Yes. That speaks, uh, this is a, something that is very dear to my heart, very close to what I'm, I'm thinking about all the time. I'm just going to read you, you've, you've read it, but possibly <laughs> so, some But again, some I, people, I may have yeah. forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the first graph. It says, what a strange feeling there is in the air, the feeling of two worlds on parallel tracks. Use whichever metaphor you like. We are living in two Americas, watching two different movies, or else some of us have woken up and realized we are living in the Matrix. For me, it seems as if there is an old world definite and imposing but brittle and frail and a new world vital and d- dynamic but fledgling and uncertain there is something dying and something being born this is i feel exactly the same way what's being born
1: uh, well right i mean many <laughs> many such many people feel this way right this is why i, yeah. I wrote the piece is there is uh, i've heard this sentiment in the air a lot and and the part of the problem, I think, with talking about it is that when things are being born, when they're new, they're kind of hazy in mm-hmm. outline, right? Yeah. I mean, you don't really know who your baby's going to grow up to be until it sort of reveals. Right. like, and, and that's kind of how I feel about all of these conversations that are happening, like, in red state legislatures and in, like group chats it, through direct message and just people who are saying something is obviously terribly wrong. We're obviously going through a crisis in this country. Our institutions are falling apart. They're crumbling under the weight of their own rot. Let's build something else. And a lot of times the something else is like kind of hectic. So here's an example that I didn't talk about in the piece but is really I think uh, emblematic for me and that's a cryptocurrency, right? All of these new Bitcoin, Dogecoin, Ethereum, right? I am by no means an economist, right? but even I can see that our financial system is, is terribly broken. And mm-hmm. one of the ways I can see it is because a bunch of Reddit bros practically brought the whole thing crashing down around our ears not too long ago, right? You remember this? Right. They started shorting GameStop, essentially. And and everybody said, oh, you can't do that, you can't do that. And they sort of responded, we're doing what everybody is doing. I mean, this is right. and so our our financial system is obviously so financialized, so so deep in debt, so that, that something new needs being done. And and cryptocurrency is kind of an answer to that. Problem. It's we're gonna sell essentially as I understand it to one another these sort of secret chains of code And that will be where we sort of root value now in the, in the digital age, right? right? Because digital technology transforms everything All our government can think to do with this development is tax it, right? The IRS is asking for 32 million dollars just to devote to how do we tax people's cryptocurrency. Elizabeth Warren is out here whining about the electricity that people use. By, I mean, this is all they can think about is how to shut this down. How to? Yeah. In, I mean, there are a million things. You could look at, at Bitcoin and say a million things. You could say, well, yeah, we're going to have to figure out how to integrate this into our pre-existing system. But what if you could like pay your taxes in, in Bitcoin? What if we could integrate this somehow into mm-hmm. to, make, to make the dollar stronger, to make America's financial economy? And so, I'm not saying that everybody knows the answers to these questions. I'm just saying that I'm with the guys that are trying to figure them out in real time, right. and not with the guys that want this to just to just like suck this into this vortex.
0: Right, because there's so many people who think that the answers are going to come from the top, right. but what you're saying is really they're going to come from the DMs, from the little uh, places where people have secret conversations. Yes. and yeah, No, I, I think this is right. You talk about, in this article, you talk about uh, the idea of the remnant, which is an idea you get from Isaiah, and I want to plug your your translation of Isaiah, uh, which it, uh, was the work of years. It's on this, a website called rejoice-evermore.com, right? That's that's
1: right. Mm-hmm.
0: First of all, the translation is is wonderful and, and fascinating, but in each, in each chapter, you give a little homily at the end, and the homilies are fantastic. They're just— they're, <laughs> Oh, thank you. My, my, No, it's thank one you. of my favorite parts of my day is reading your homilies. That's it's really wonderful. But in, in Isaiah, there's this idea that Israel has fallen into sin and has gone uh, down the, the hole, but there will be this remnant that will return and rebuild the country. And you talk about that that's what we're looking for now, that we're in such disarray, and we are in disarray, that— This remnant, what's that remnant going to look like? If you had to give me three adjectives, I mean, Mm. not to put you to the test, but I mean, what
1: what would they be? I mean, young, based, and trad, right? (laughs) um, No, but Uh, uh, if folks want to get a handle on this idea, I would commend them to this old Atlantic Monthly essay called Isaiah's Job. It's about what's the job of the prophet, right? And you can just Google it and find it. Online. And the idea is, you know, prophets, it's not unique to Isaiah. Prophets come up in times of decadence, times of decay. A lot of them are speaking about before or during the Babylonian exile, which was the final catastrophe that came after, after, you know, the Israelites' elite had kind of abandoned the faith, had abandoned the old ways. You know, Um, then there came sweeping, this terrible, disastrous oppression from from foreign nations. And the prophets were raised up to, to tell about this and to prepare people for how God was going to lead them back to the ancient truths. So the remnant are basically the guys that are there for the prophet to speak to. The prophet is born to speak to these people who still believe in the ancient divine truths. And those include things just as basic as like there is right and wrong. And Isaiah says about the elite that they call good evil and evil good, which of course is everywhere, right? We see this all the time. Up is down, black is white, men are women, all of these things, right? I mean, that that, that was as much a part of Isaiah's society as it is a part of ours. And so the remnant are even just those people who, who, who haven't bent the knee to that. And the key part, of it, one of the key parts about them is that you don't know who they are or where they are. The prophets, and this is emphasized in this essay, the prophets think that they are speaking into this void. And sometimes they think that that all is lost, that they just despair. But in fact, says God, I know every one of them that is out there, right? And so, yeah, who are ours? Well, there is this kind of idea, I feel like, in conservative world that to be the remnant, what you do is you cling to, like, the Reagan era, you cling to libertarian market principles and you go out with, you lose every political fight you can if needs must. But this is a a terrible mistake, I think. I mean, you look at the remnant in, in Isaiah, and they're always described as new. They're always described as seedlings or th- like things that are growing up uh, out of this wreckage. And so actually what the remnant are are the people who go back to those eternal truths. Mm. They're not the Reagan era, but the founding era, right? And the ancients, you know, the, the classics who inspire the founding era. And so these things, these, these notions of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, rightly understood, the, the, that, you know, declaration of independence, that those constitutional liberties, those are going to get reborn in ways that we can't even foresee. Yeah. Yet. We can't imagine because it's everything is changing.
0: You know, I've, I've been talking about something on my show called the great, what I call the great forgetting, and mm. it, that, which is the idea that the progressives think they're progressing, but they're actually regressing. They think they're progressing to a post-Christian era, but they're actually regressing to a pre-Christian era. They're shedding right. the things that made Western culture the, the greatest culture that's ever existed on earth, and right. made the European culture the greatest culture that's ever existed, and they're forgetting it. I can't help feeling that there is going to be some kind of uh, reconciliation with Christianity or at least with religion, at least with theism, Mm. uh, for this to come about. And I want to talk to you specifically about this. I've noticed you've got your masterpiece cake (laughs) Well, I knew you were going to ask me (laughs)
1: this question. I just wanted to signal that I come in peace (laughs) as you ask this question. (laughs) Well, well,
0: I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of this uh, circles around sex. And I, I mean, a lot of, and that's true in the Bible too, that when people start to fall apart, they start to be, you know, they start to rape angels in Sodom, you know, yeah. whenever, uh, and, and people start to uh, lose their way in terms of their, their sexual relationships and all this stuff. And there's so much of this going on. And I personally have so far kind of been disappointed by it because I'm an artist. I've lived with gay people all my life. You are a Gay, your mother says.
1: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told her. I, I thought she would tell you. Yeah, <laughs>
0: Conservative Christian, right? Mm. When I, I supported all kinds of gay rights, including gay marriage, but I find that since this decision where a couple of judges basically said, yes, now you can have gay marriage, things have gone Pear shaped very quickly. Uh, Boy, the howdy. masterpiece cake, cake yeah. shop. This is fascism to tell an artist what he has to make on his cakes, what what ideas he has to put on his cakes. Uh, this idea that children are being butchered uh, to change their sex. Is it possible? This toleration was wrong. I mean, once we stopped killing you, do we now have to bake you cupcakes? (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: Well, you should certainly bake me a cupcake because I will eat it. No, but um, you certainly, no, you do not. You do not have to bake people cupcakes. And that's why I think it was obscene what they did to Jack Phillips. Um, And and I know that there are gonna be a lot of people out there listening to this conversation who hear you say, I'm a gay Christian conservative and immediately say, well, there's no such thing, right? I mean, that is- I get this a lot. I completely understand that. You know, I understand it both because this does represent a reconsideration of some of our some of the things we've believed for hundreds of years, right? And and it's not unheard of to do that in the West to sort of look again at, for example, ideas about slavery, right, which have obtained for a very long time right. and wonder whether they were quite right. And so we did go through uh, something like that in this in this country. Um, some of it was, I would say, salutary, but I, I compare it to to BLM, right, Black Lives Matter. You you and I were living in. Los Angeles, both, when the summer 2020 hit. And these people tore the country apart. I was, I was sitting in my apartment on 3rd and Fairfax, and I watched them break into building after building as the newscasters said things like, well, one man's riot is really another. Yeah. Man's right? yeah. Nobody looks at that event and thinks, well, it was probably a mistake to, to free black people and to make them full citizens. We all all see that and we immediately know this is a, a righteous issue that has been hijacked by Marxists. And Marxists know exactly how to do this. They are very good at it. They talked about doing it all throughout the 60s and 70s, right? This this cultural turn of Marxism that they were going to use to drive people against each other. They did exactly that in Masterpiece Cake Shop. I mean, this is something that people forget, right? This was not just an organic, oh, I need a cake for my wedding. Where am I going to go? This was. They targeted this man. They knew that he had refused to bake for other Situations for divorce parties, um, for a number of celebrations that he found immoral, which is absolutely his right as an American and as a man created by God, right. And they walked in there and immediately, basically, blew this up into this enormous ACLU case. They did the same thing, by the way, with the 1964 Civil Rights Act. After that law was written, they would go into cities and find places where they could generate conflict over, over like employment issues, for example, and, and, and make up issues, issues of race. And so leftists are very, very good at hijacking these things and turning them into, and, and the, the real problem there is that now, right, in real communities where people are actually trying to figure out how to live together, The the natural, the best way to do that is in relationship between individuals. I have a million friends, probably the majority of my closest friends, began our relationship thinking that I was living in terrible sin. And the first hurdle that I had to get over with them was just explaining that I didn't hate them or think that they were evil. And the Mm. reason for that is not because there's anything inherent in being gay, that means you have to hate people that think it's sinful. The reason for that is Masterpiece Cake Shop, and that because there are these these goons, these Marxist goons, turning everything into this enormous, you know, earth-shattering catastrophe where you're evil if you oppose the regime. Right? But, but then let's
0: talk about that that bigger issue, though. Yeah. I mean, we you and I both read a book about this book by Carl Truman was oh, called the rise and triumph of the modern Self, mm-hmm. which he taught he starts out by talking about transgenderism and how did we get to this crazy place where we're saying men can become women, and he he says his argument he's a christian theologian and he says that changing our ideas of sexuality are not just ancillary to Christian thought. They're at the core of Christian thought. And I'll read you a quote. He says, we need to realize that our identities are not fundamentally or primarily sexual in any way. We're rooted in the image of God, rooted in our union with Christ. That brings with it a framework of sexual behavior. Celibacy outside of marriage, chastity within it is an important part of who we are and how we are to behave. And by marriage, he means the lifelong relationship between a man and a woman. Can you can we accept you? Can we not? Can we not thank you? Kill you? No, I mean, look, we, we can be f- friends, but we, we have to th- cast you out of our churches right. in order to still believe in the Christ who is Christ.
1: Well, I want to say at the outset, right, that you have every right to cast you cast me out of your church. If if you dis- I mean, I am, I'm not. I, I recognize that part of what. This movement entails what conservative gay Christianity entails is a, a, a reinterpretation and a, and a rethinking of, of, of things. And the, part of the problem is that people stride in with this entitlement, right? But no, like I'm coming into the, the house of Western culture, right? And, and they, they do things a certain way here, and I'm basically asking to be given a little room, right, in that in that house. Now, I agree very much with Truman, that our identities are not fundamentally sexual. And that's, I think, the most powerful part of the book is he just points to this Freudian turn, uh, which was sort of combined with Marxism, right, where everything became about sex. To me, the big divide on this issue and the big sort of prerequisite for, for engagement and conversation is not between right and left, not between conservatives and liberals, but between people who think that what we're talking about is all about sex, is all about your physical desire and your and your lust, and people who understand that what we're talking about is a kind of love, a kind of way that people fall in love, and Truman's absolutely right. That's so much more enormous than sex. And so on the right, you get these. Well, you just want to sort of bend the Bible, because so that you can sleep with who you want to, right? and and that and, and you get reduced to these very physical acts. Essentially, you want to do this act. And it's it you know it's really much more complicated than that. It's it, my my nature is not sexual, but there you think about what a totalizing thing it is to fall in love with somebody, right. right? Think about the way that, you know, you like the way that she laughs. You like the, the smell of her hair. You like the, I mean, and, and things that you can't even describe that are about her. That, you know, if you're somebody like me, uh, and, you know, again, I, I, I mean no offense, but I also cannot tell a lie, right? I, I must be honest about what my experience of human life has been. I have only ever fallen in love with men. Right, that is a whole, and so, you know, you can you can say of me that that means I must simply not know romantic love. I think that I, I don't agree with the biblical arguments for that, which we may have to get into another time. I mean, that's a little long right. conversation we can touch on. Um, but then on the left, you have people who think the exact same thing, who think that this is about sex, right? This is just pure material, just bodies, just let body. And, and somewhere in the middle, among sensible people who are trying to live together in community, there are folks who know that this is about forming a decent, respectable, upstanding way of falling in love and and, and shaping your society. Look, I mean, that doesn't mean that you have to redefine the word marriage, right? It does not mean you have to sort of say instantly, oh, marriage has always been just two people. No, marriage is a gendered thing. Um, But it does mean that you might want to work with gay people to figure out some sort of institution that they can enter into that will be lifelong and committed and monogamous so that they don't just get cast out into the wild, right? To like do the, I mean, the terrible things that gay people do sexually sometimes not not always because they're excluded but sometimes because you know there's no anyway so this is this is essentially my answer to truman
0: yeah because when you exclude people from society you exclude them from the moral order of society
1: you you called me dog and now yeah yeah
0: yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, we're out of time but i just uh, right now our president is an idiot our press (laughs) is corrupt our music is trash, our movies are trash. Uh, we have no arts worthwhile that I, you know I love the arts, and I'm not seeing anything new that really moves me. Where do you look for hope
1: briefly? Mm. Well, I look actually right around me into my immediate surroundings. And this was an insight that i I found during. The aftermath of the presidential election, which was probably my bleakest moment mm-hmm. politically, it was you know in the middle of COVID, the, the election had gone terribly wrong. All of these things, um, and I noticed that my emotional life was really closely keyed to these big ideas I had about where the country was going, and not keyed to what was going on immediately around me. Yeah, that's really around that's, me, right?
0: that's smart. Yeah,
1: I. Have, it, in, in my immediate life, I have a, a deeply loving, committed partner whom I, d- I adore. I have a job that like fills me with passion every day. And I have people who are working in my community to try and figure out how to ban this critical race theory nonsense, to protect children from the predations of the trans lobby, all of these things, right? That's where I find hope. And I actually think that's more real than Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know.
0: Excellent. Great talking to you. The podcast is Spencer Claven, No relation. The <laughs> podcast is The Young Heretics. Do not miss it. And also, if you're not reading uh, the Claremont Review of Books, you really are missing out. Those are, two, th- those are two cultural institutions that will not only fill you with ideas, they will give you hope. More to come. All right. You know what time it is. It's time to gather your troubles around you. Kiss them goodbye, because here comes the mailbag. Woo!
2: I keep forgetting I'm president. Yay!
0: I wish I could forget. Uh, All right. From Melvin, dear Clavin the Wise, I'm a 29-year-old man and I've recently gotten serious about looking for a potential wife. I'd really like your opinion on a discussion I had with a friend of mine recently. He asked me what qualities I believed a good wife should possess. I admit I struggled with this question quite a bit, which is why I would like to hear your opinion. Thanks a million. You know, a a really good question because feminism has made it sort of like insulting to think there actually is such a thing as a good wife. But of course, there is. Wife is a uh, job. It's a position. I think it's an element elevated a very high and honorable position. And uh, but it just like any position, it entails rights and responsibilities. Uh, of course, it all begins with you. I mean, it begins with what you want, and what you're looking for, who you hit it off with. Uh, that kind of magical thing that nobody can actually tell you anything about when you find yourself with somebody and you just want to be with them and you're laughing all the time. And it's every, every, everything is interesting, as a girl once said to me, when you when you fall in love, everything is interesting uh, that, that you're, you're talking about. And um, and I think that, you know, that that is all obviously stuff about you. And also, what kind of life do you want to live? I mean, this is something that people should talk about before they get married. It really is. You know, is it a li- is it a family life? Is it a life with kids in it? Or do you want to, you know, be a shallow, empty, you know, p- people with a dog and a nice car uh, who take big vacations, but have nothing in your life of wa- value? Uh, <laughs> totally up to you. Don't let me influence your ideas. But, but you know, I mean, if you want uh, children, if you want a- those children to have a mom, Uh, That's a life that you're going to have to, you know, that you want your wife to want, not to force upon her. And it's a life you're going to have to think about and how you're going to get it and what sacrifices you're going to make. You're going to have to make sacrifices no matter what life you choose. And so you're going to want to have a a woman who shares those values. She doesn't have to agree with you about everything, uh, but she has to share those values. But I think in in more general, you know, I'm a guy who likes, I like feminine women, right? I, you know, I love, one of the things I love about my wife is she passes through a room and magically suddenly there are flowers all over the place and everything looks better. I pass through a room and everything's broken I'm like living entropy, you know, so she restores everything she goes through. She's a very feminine person. And because I don't bring a lot of that energy to the table, uh, that that makes us a a really good match. And we've had a, a really great time together. If that's not what you're looking for, you should know. And you should know you can examine your daydreams and examine the honesty of your daydreams. When you daydream about a woman, what is she like? Is that true? Would you like, you know, you might daydream, oh, I'd really like just a woman who's just dumb, you know? Like, And then you think, well, no, actually, that would that would be boring over time. You know, you question, you can question your daydreams, question uh, your desires. But, but still, I think the one thing that is really important uh, more than any is, is a wife should be devoted to the project that you have in mind. And that, if you... Th- conceive of that project as a joint project or a project that you are mostly going to do, I think you want a wife who is devoted to it. You know, you don't want a, a wife who says, okay, if you want kids, we'll have kids, right? You know, you don't want that. Uh, you want somebody who knows how to talk and to laugh instead of fighting. You want to avoid drama, which is a, a more feminine flaw than it is a male flaw, but it is no good uh, for relationships. You don't want drama in your relationships. You want communication and talking uh, and affection and, 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 Uh, Sympathy, Uh, But, you know, listen, it's it's hard for me to say because everybody likes something different, but I like women who are women. I like women who are sympathetic, tender, kind, uh, who love beauty, who bring beauty to the table, who bring kindness uh, to the table. Uh, And I want that devotion uh, that I think that women are capable of that men aren't. So you have to decide for yourself, but you have to examine yourself first and know what kind of life you want. Um, from Andrea, dear mastermind of Clavenon this is an embarrassing question, but one I've been struggling with for 10 years of marriage. My husband has strange demands in the bedroom. Sometimes what he wants makes me nauseated. I've given in frequently, but eventually it starts a fight when I want to take a break. I'm not a prude, and I have a hard time believing most women would comply with his requests. It has gotten to the point that my sex drive has significantly decreased. Uh, that is the only thing we fight about. We have two young daughters. He's a good father, and I love him so much. What do I do? Do I give in to the things he wants or holds my ground? Well, the answer to this uh, is simple, but it's not easy. And I have to tell you uh, that just from what you say in this letter, uh, I, it's hard for me to see a, a passage to a good uh, outcome here or an, it's certainly not a, an easy outcome. Um, let me start by telling you my attitude. My, this is my general attitude. This is not an answer to your question in any way. This is my general attitude. My attitude is that th- there are sexual obligations in marriage in marriage. Sa- In marriage. You should be generous about sex. Uh, You should be willing to try things that delight your partner. Uh, You shouldn't worry about being in the mood. You shouldn't worry about uh, things that maybe, you know, you have to get used to. Uh, You you should try and bring joy and pleasure to your partner in the bedroom. And, uh, you know, I think probably sometimes that entails more responsibility on women than it does on men because men are more uh, immediately sexual and they're crazier. They, men, have crazier desires. Uh, just I'm generalizing, obviously, but men have crazier desires than women, so women have to be a little bit more patient. Having said that, I, I point that out because I feel that this is not that situation. Uh, I'm taking you at your word when you tell me you're nauseated and you're not a prude, that makes me think that this guy is into something that is really unpleasant, uh, really difficult and really ugly. Uh, and uh, no, I'm sorry. I, no, you are you are not a um, you are not A blow-up doll, you are a lady. You're not just a lady. You are the lady of the house, uh, which is, as I say, an elevated position and deserves elevated treatment. Um, And you should not be made to feel sick to your stomach in bed. Uh, I mean, a loving husband does not make you feel sick to your stomach in bed. He does make you feel humiliated and he doesn't hurt you either. Uh, you know, all of those things are subject to choice uh, and to attitude. You may have an attitude where what one nauseates one person doesn't nauseate another. And again, I think you should be generous and broad-minded, but I'm taking you at your word that this is really something that, that a normal person would find disgusting. And um, and no, I, I don't think that that's something that you have to endure. I think it's a, I, I genuinely think it's a form of abuse actually I think it's a form of abuse if if you are taking your wife to bed and she is feeling humiliated or disgusted or injured um, and so, What bothers me about this, and the reason I say I can't, I'm not seeing a good way to a a good outcome, is that you say that when you don't want to take a break, you get into a fight. Uh, You know, this is something you should be able to talk about with sympathy from both sides. I I sympathize with him. I sympathize with him. I know how powerful, obviously, uh, the sexual drive in men is. It is, especially when you're younger, it is a rocket ship. You know, it is something that really can drive you insane. And if you were in the Awful situation of wanting to do something that the woman in your life doesn't like. Uh, that is very tough because that if it's a fetish, which is what it sounds like to me, uh, it's it's the only thing that'll satisfy you. So I think you're going to have to sit down and talk to him in a sensitive, non-combative way. Uh, tell him that you know you, you are feeling you feel just terrible. It's making your sex life bad, uh, and that you know he may have to solve this with pornography. He may have to solve this with therapy. Uh, but but he should not be making the lady of the house uh, feel nauseated and humiliated in, in this way. That is not something that should be happening and you need to talk it through and not fight it out. You don't want to fight it out. You want to talk it out as, as two partners in life uh, who are traveling together, you know, through life with sympathy. Um, it's a tough It's a tough situation. Uh, Dear Almighty Lord, this is from Wilhelm, uh, dear, dear Almighty Lord and Mortal Emperor of Clavenon and the Universe and all the Universe, uh, I, I I was for a time in my life part of a neo-Nazi group, part of neo-Nazi groups, despite feeling as feeling I'm a rational person, and it's not because I hated Jews. I have Jewish family and friends, uh, and some survivors from concentration camps. I joined with them because I truly fear the left will move to genocidal campaigns against all descendants, uh, all uh, disagreeing thought. Uh, In the not-so-distant future, seeing leftism infect the Marines while I was in and seeing it in the streets when I got out pushed me to join the only group that seemed to be willing to use the same violence they use against us. Um, In my time there, I found many that were not hating Jews and even pro-Jew, but many of us were simply seeking a way to stop the left's madness. This goes on, but he says ultimately he got out and helped other people uh, get out, uh, and he is now part of a movement in Germany that is trying to restore monarchy to Germany, and his question is— I know you were all-knowing and omnipotent. That's true. So please, O oh Lord of Clavenon, please save us all. Uh, he says, how do I stop good conservatives from becoming as extreme as I once did? That's his question. Uh, first of all, I want to congratulate you on getting out. I mean, some people get sucked into those things and then can't face uh, the mistake they've made and don't get out. I'm glad you got out. Uh, I'm glad you found a more a healthier way out. And, and, you know, you obviously don't want to act out of, out of hate, but you don't want to act out of fear either. I know that there are people on the left, a lot of people on the left who would like to eliminate the right. And I don't know if they want to do that through violence, but I think that there are a lot of people. But is that really going to happen just because people want something to happen and just because you're afraid of it doesn't mean it's going to happen. And I think you may be jumping the gun. It is a sin to commit violence in anticipation of someone else's violence. Uh, I know that the left has gotten violent. I know BLM is violent. I know Antifa is violent. But but is this a violent that, violence that really calls for a violent movement to counter it, or can we do this through the law? I think those are things you really have to think about. Uh, you know, I know a lot of people, you seem to have given up on democracy. You want to restore monarchy. I know a lot of people on the right feel this way. I think I think we're jumping the gun. I think that democracy and, and at least republicanism and freedom have a, a good century left in them. Uh, but. But if you feel this way, you have the right to do what you're saying. Simply act in love, act with joy, and people will follow and, and spread your message to those who are willing to hear it, and people will follow you in uh, to a more constructive method. But I think you should, yourself should think about whether or not you're acting out of fear. Uh, whether just be, Again, just because people want to do something and just because there are bad people and just because sometimes those bad people do things doesn't mean you have to react in fear and think that they are going to win. That's not necessarily the case. I have to stop there. We'll be back again next week. You won't be here because the Clavenless week is upon you. It is like a crushing darkness falling like a avalanche of a night upon you. Uh, and you'll be crushed underneath it. But if you manage to crawl through the rubble and get back here, we will be back again next Friday. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode and want to spread the word, give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe, too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, remember to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Matt Walsh Show, and The Michael Knoll Show. Thanks for listening. The Andrew Clavin Show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Supervising Producer, Mathis Glover. Production Manager, Pavel Vidowski. Edited by Danny D'Amico. Lead Audio Mixer, Mike Cormina. Animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production Coordinator, McKenna Waters. And our Production Assistant is Jacob Falash. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire Production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021.
4: Joe Biden declares that global warming is the greatest threat we face. Jeffrey Tubin goes on CNN and the result is the second most cringeworthy video he's ever been in. A young girl speaks up against gender theory in schools and iHeartMedia puts out a job listing and declares that it wants diverse applicants only, read not white. And finally, the harrowing tale of Korean-Canadian sitcom stars who spent five seasons on a show and now that it's over, they say that they were being victimized by racism the whole time. Yeah, all of that and much more today on The Matt Wall Show.